Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined this week by Masha Gessen, the author and journalist whose new book is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Masha, can you start by telling me a little bit about what you were trying to do in this book? It sort of follows the lives of seven people through the sort of post-perestroika period from about kind of early 80s right through to the present day. So I was trying to do a couple of things. <laughs> I was trying to write a book about what didn't happen, which is pretty difficult. It's, uh, it's much easier to write about what did happen. But I was trying to write about you know why what we all, and by we all I mean Western journalists and Moscow intellectuals, and I was both, so what we all expected to happen after the Soviet Union collapsed, or we thought it was collapsed, it had collapsed, which is democracy and, and the embrace of freedom and Western values and all that sort of thing. Why did, that didn't happen? And the answers to that lay, I think, the most important answer lies, I think, in trauma. Or trauma, if you use sort of the language of psychology or the persistence of cultural institutions, if you use the language of sociology. And both of those schools of thought are well represented in the book. But I really wanted to use the horrible phrase, show rather than tell. Uh-huh. You talk about it being, a, I don't know whether you use the phrase nonfiction novel, but you talk early on about I'd, I'd, trying I'd, to do yeah. something novelistic. Yeah, I do use the phrase nonfiction novel. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I've, I've written conventional journalistic books, and I will do so again. I think, I think that's a format that is perfectly serviceable. But I don't think it's great for what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do I was really trying to sort of not not describe trauma, especially because it's pretty difficult to describe, and there isn't a whole lot of scholarship on it. But not scholarship but, at the national level. I, there's actually sort of there's actually very scholarship. very little scholarship anywhere on collective trauma. It's a pretty esoteric field, and there's virtually no scholarship. There's like literally one book on post-Soviet collective trauma. So that I couldn't, I couldn't really rely on that. And anyway, I wanted to show how it feels. So the way that I was thinking about it is that, you know, in journalism, the distance between the narrator and the subject is kind of a known distance, and I think of it as a, as a middle distance. And I wanted to write a book using different kinds of distances, the kind of distance that you're m- much more likely to see in a novel, which is that the book is written either from the interior so zero distance from the subject, or from sort of a bird's eye view. Uh, and you sort of hop back and forth in the book a little bit. Right, and you hop way, back yeah. and forth, which is what you would do in a Russian novel. You would either be inside your protagonist's head, or, you know, and show the entire panorama and the movement of troops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we know which novel you're thinking of. <laughs> now, one of the sort of really strong themes in the book, it seems to me, it's kind of fascinating, is that, you know, we often say you know, rather kind of blithely, it's impossible to understand Russia from the outside. And the theme in this book seems to be that actually during the Soviet period, it was impossible to understand Russia from the inside because this sort of vocabulary that you'd have has gone. And I think to a large extent, it's still true. So what happened early on in revolutionary Russia was a very intentional sort of annihilation of the social sciences, which could only get in the way of Bolshevism in different ways. Sociology was just a particular enemy of Lenin's. He believed it was a pseudoscience, and he was very annoyed with Bukharin, who identified as a sociologist and wrote a sociology of Marxism. And psychology, there was a much more sort of ideological reason why psychology couldn't exist, because you know the Soviet man had to exist in perfect harmony with Soviet society, being the product of that society. 
internal internal contradiction was not allowed. If you were in turmoil, if you were in a conflict, you only had the right to be in turmoil if you were criminal, in which case you belonged in, in, in a camp or you were mentally ill, in which case you belonged in a different kind of camp. Uh, and, uh, and in society, you had to be in perfect harmony. To challenge that assumption would be to challenge the very basic assumptions of building revolutionary society, which was supposed to create the material conditions for the creation of a new man. Material being an operative word. So there was no psychology, there was no, there was no sociology. Other social sciences were also heavily restricted. And I quote early on in the book the wonderful Russian economist Konstantin Sonin, who now teaches at the University of Chicago, who wrote once that, that the loss of knowledge was such that a Soviet economist working in the 1970s would have been incapable of understanding the writing of his predecessor from the 1920s. And I think that that's, that's a story about how an entire society lost the tools of self-understanding. And if you don't have the language to understand what's happening to society, the society can't move forward. Yeah, well, two of your, I mean, two of the people you've chosen, you know, one of them is a psychologist and one of them is a, you know, is a sociologist. A sociologist they're, yeah. they're both very much swimming against the grade, aren't they? Right. So it's, it's, it's part of the book as an intellectual history. And I chose two people who could tell me using their own lives about the search for social science understanding in a society that banned it. And to me, one of the uh, most poignant moments in the book is when uh, my psychoanalyst protagonist, Marina Arutunyan, goes, in the mid-1990s, goes to a school for psychoanalysts, organized by Western psychoanalysts, a school for psychoanalysts from countries where the psychoanalytic tradition has been interrupted, so from, from post-Soviet countries. And by this time, she's been practicing psychoanalysis for a number of years, and she feels perfectly competent. And I think she was about to become the president of the Moscow Psychoanalytic Society. And she goes to the school and she observes Western psychoanalysts working, and she realizes that they're so much better than she is. Not because they're smarter, not because they're more talented, not because they're more sensitive, but because they stand on the shoulders of their predecessors who stand on the shoulders of their predecessors who stand on the shoulders of giants. And she stands on nothing. And she, being a psychoanalyst, describes it as a narcissistic blow. But I think it, it's, uh, it's probably best described as heartbreak. To go back to how you put this together, because obviously you've said, you know, you've chosen some of these people who are working in the social sciences. How did you choose your seven? Did you have a kind of short list of 12 or something and then go, actually, these people won't give me the access I need. I haven't got the, you know, some of your characters, I should say, for the listeners are people who are sort of, you know, they're activists or they're involved or they've, they've lived this trajectory, but some of them are also related to kind of, you know, the senior architect of Perestroika, the, you know, one of the great free market ideologues, Boris Nemtsov. You've got, they're all quite connected in right. certain ways as well. So I had this idea that I wanted to, to have four people who were born in the mid-1980s. And I set out a set of criteria. So born in the mid-1980s, somewhat geographically diverse. Definitely they had to all come from different socioeconomic classes. And the reason for that is that I think it's very important to understand just how stratified Soviet society was. This is something that is very little understood in, in the West. And in Russia, it's also very little understood and how much that stratification has actually carried over to contemporary Russian yes, you society. You talked at one point about how the, it became visible, the stratification, yes. and the nomenclature weren't getting their kind of deliveries 
from the delivery centers, they suddenly had to go shopping, you know. And and other people were walking past those supermarkets where they were going shopping and seeing all the stuff that they could not access, which had been invisible before or had yeah. had literally been hidden behind behind a fence. So they had to be you know, two boys, two girls, and one of them had to be gay because I really needed someone who could sort of showcase the anti-gay campaign of the last five years. They needed to remember 1991, or th- at least believe that they had a memory of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Although I had no problem, everyone I talked to uh, who was born in the mid-80s believed that they had a memory of, of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And another criterion was that their lives had to have changed drastically as a result of the crackdown of the last five years. So I wasn't looking for Putin supporters. It was clear that there were going to be people who'd lost something significant as a result of the crackdown. And of course, they had to be willing to sit with me for hours and hours and hours and hours. Yes, it does have the hours. deep, 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 right. long conversation. Right. I mean, you know, down to the you know, stuff that's being served in the exactly. very early on. Yeah, so I would, yeah, I would ask them ridiculous questions about, you know, what was in television or what something tasted like or, you know, yeah. what color their bathroom walls were. And uh, so that it takes a particular kind of person at a particular moment in their life when they feel they can benefit from, from talking through things. So there were two people who I started talking to and it became clear that it wasn't going to work. So one was actually a gay man who was still living in Russia and became clear that he couldn't be open enough with me about his story to make it sort of come out and well in the telling. So the the gay character in the book ended up being this incredible young academic from Perm who is now living in, in New York City. And the, the, this is the really funny part. One of the characters started out being Senya Sapchak, who is now running for president in, in Russia. And it, it just very quickly became clear that she wasn't going to sort of devote the, the kind of time that I needed to this project. And I went to Zhanna Nemtsova instead. Zhanna Nemtsova is the daughter of Boris Nemtsov, the opposition politician who was murdered two years ago. And of course, you know, they seem like really different characters. But the reason that one sort of substituted for the other is that both of them had a clear relationship to power in the 1990s. I needed someone who grew up in the house of somebody who actually had political power in that particular period of um, yeah. of Russian history. So it would have been a very different book with Ksenia than Majana, but I think I would have been able to shed light on many of the same things. That interstitial period you're talking about, and it kind of goes to this issue of you said, you know, why did what we hoped would happen and what you know Francis Fukuyama thought would happen not happen? In the book, one of the sort of strangest and most sinister trajectories is that of Alexander Dugan, you know, who starts out looking like, you know, he's a sort of organic intellectual, he's reading like mad, he's very anti-communist. And yet, of course, he sort of becomes Putin's, you know, ideological, not quite chief, but, you know, senior, you know, he kind of moves to fascism and nationalism rather than towards liberal democracy. Why do you think that trajectory was the one he took? And why do you, you know, in what way is that, how much is that representative of sort of, if you like, his generation? I think it's plenty representative. Although, I mean, I should say I I never set out to write a book about representative characters because I don't believe in that project at all. There are things that I wanted to spotlight in in the Russian story because I think they they are informative, and so I was looking for people who could help me spotlight them. But I don't think they represent millions of others. But Dugan, you know, there was this assumption, and I certainly had a similar assumption even when I was growing up in a sort of quasi-dissident household, that all Soviet dissidents 
were Western-style liberals. And of course they weren't. Just because somebody was opposed to the Soviet regime didn't make them automatically a Western-style liberal. Dugin is complicated. I mean, Dugin was, probably could have gone in any number of directions. And who knows, maybe the fact that his girlfriend left him for a woman in the late 1980s was one of the things that sent him careening to the right when he could have actually careened to the left. I actually think that's quite likely. And I think it's also important to understand how how random some of these ideological turns can be and how someone can latch on to an ideology, especially someone like Dugin who, who needs big ideas and sort of global ideologies that will explain everything forever, backwards and forwards. Yeah. Now, you know, very early on in the, in the book, there's the description, you know, as perestroika was happening, as the Soviet Union was starting to kind of lose control of the edges, all these kind of KGB field agents were pulled in from Western capitals and so forth. And, and you describe, you know, one particularly pissed off guy coming home from Dresden, and it's the young Vladimir Putin. Obviously, you know, he's such a huge figure in this book. But, you know, I mean, I think... But we he's, the, he's hardly mentioned. He, but he's hardly mentioned, but he's sort of... <laughs> yeah. In the background, of course, because we in the West, a lot of the time, Russia is, as we see it, you know, it's Putin. It's this kind of guy who's in control of, or attempting to be in control of this apparently very dysfunctional state. How much do you think the trajectory of Russia's return to totalitarianism, as you describe it, is sort of down to Putin himself, to his personality, to his... So I should explain actually what I mean by the return to totalitarianism, because I don't make the claim that Russia has a totalitarian regime. It doesn't. It has a mafia state, which is exactly what Putin set out to build. But he built his mafia state on the ruins of a totalitarian society. And so the more pressure this mafia state applied, especially in the crackdown of the last five years, the more the informal and some formal institutions of a totalitarian society came back into being. And you know, I think that some some sort of reversion was inevitable, probably. And we've seen that in other post-Soviet countries. They, sort of, they take a step forward and at least, at least one step back. But I think the magnitude of it and the particular character of the, of the Russian reversion is determined by Putin. His instinct for power and his absolutely insatiable hunger for wealth. And do you see him as having any ideology at all. I mean, you talk about the totalitarianism, you know, this sort of return of many of those features of totalitarianism. I think it's your sociologist, Lev Gutkov, says, you know, he suddenly realized, ah, the ideology comes last when you're rebuilding it. Right. I mean, do you see Putin as ideological? You know, I think that the word ideology is actually a little misleading <laughs> in the sense that ide- ideology is something that becomes coherent when history books are written. It very rarely actually feels coherent to the contemporaries of that ideology. And, you know, if you read, I mean, we think of, of, of Nazism as a very strong ideology, right? But if you read contemporaries of the rise of Nazism, somebody like Eric Fromm, who just flat out states that Hitler has no ideology, he is an opportunist who jumps from idea to idea and has no, no coherent line of thinking, or Victor Klemper, who also calls him an opportunist, or Hannah Arendt writing in the 1950s, so after the war, and it looks a little bit more coherent to her in hindsight, but she says, well, we were slow to, to catch on to how dangerous it was because it seemed so preposterous 
his ideology, right? I mean, who would believe that somebody could exterminate millions of people in the name of this idea of the war of the races? How ridiculous can can you get? So ideology is not sort of all that we imagine it to be 70 years after it's been relegated to text, and text makes it look more coherent. Yeah. In that sense, I think that Gutkov might even be molding it a little bit too much to, for the history books. I think that Putin may have just as much of an ideology as other dictators and even totalitarian leaders have had. He has a talent for grabbing onto ideas that can serve as mobilizing ideas. And he's certainly demonstrated that with Crimea and with being able to to keep Russia in a constant state of mobilization since at least the spring of 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine. It's quite extraordinary for for a kind of Western reader to see the thing where the TV rain tweets something like a it's a question that you know should the siege of leningrad have been avoided and you know your protagonist masha goes oh my God, you know you have no idea the whirlwind you're about to reap and we're like, why, why would that be why would that be a problem and does the great patriotic war as a kind of ideological object still have this kind of absolute power do you think over the collective mind Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not its not a question of whether it still has the power. It has more power today than it did yesterday, and it has more power in December than it did in October. I mean, it is growing in the Russian mind with every passing day. And as Lev Gutkov, the sociologist, says, it's the perfect historical myth because it shines its light, its light forward and backward. Shining forward, it explains how the Soviet Union became a superpower. And shining backward, it justifies all the terror that came before. And it really has been recast. Stalinist terror has been recast in the Russian imagination as preparation for World War II. An entirely historical view for which there's no evidence, but it's, it's now firmly in, in, entrenched. And it really is becoming a bigger and b- bigger myth with, with every passing day, especially right now, because we're in the year of the centenary of the revolution, And so the war has to get even bigger to overshadow the possibility of thinking about a revolution. Yeah. Now, to descend momentarily to kind of gossip, but you've been in a room with Putin. Sort of what was your impression of him? Did he attempt to intimidate? Did he attempt to charm? What what sense of him as a person did you get when that that happened? I mean, you should maybe mention the circumstances. So, well, the important circumstances for me is that I had written a book about him, which he didn't know, because no one would want to tell him. Uh, The book had come out six months earlier, and so I had spent several years writing it. So I had spent all this time in Putin's head, or what I imagined to be Putin's head, and sort of trying to figure out this character. And then he called me and asked for a meeting for an entirely different reason. So it was like going to meet a character from my book. And part of me wanted him to be exactly like the character in my book. And part of me wanted him to be more interesting and exciting and charming than the character in my book, who wasn't particularly interesting or exciting or charming. Unfortunately, he ended up not being exciting or charming or interesting. Is really probably the most striking thing about him for me was that, not just that he was as two-dimensional as I imagined him to be, but that he really has lost all but one sort of speech register. Certainly when, when he was an active KGB agent, but also when he first became president, he really used his skills as a master recruiter. And you know was very much aided by the charisma of his office, but he charmed people. 
people who were highly skeptical of the idea of a KGB agent being the president of Russia would go in to meet him and come out sort of changed. And, and I was wondering if something like that was going to happen to me, and it didn't even come close. He now speaks to everybody in exactly the same way. He uses a lot of below-the-belt humor. It was actually pretty inappropriate to, you know, he was meeting this middle-aged Jewish lady from, you know, the educated circles of Moscow. In the Russian understanding of how things are done, you don't curse. A man cannot curse in that situation in front of a woman. And he called himself a dickhead, which was his attempt to, to sort of ingratiate himself to me by denigrating himself, which is a very Putin thing to do. Then the New York Times asked me to write about the encounter and then wouldn't let me use the word dickhead. Oh, that's very priggish of them. I mean, it's actually interesting. There's a bit where, in the book where you describe how Putin said, he's talking, he's talking about Crimea, I think, mm-hmm. and he suggests that the West are going to kind of sort of anally rape them and it gets translated as we're not going to stand for that or something. There's a, the Kremlin translators, I mean, is he sending out two signals sometimes that he'll use a sort of vulgar language? I mean, I remember there's a thing of him going after the church and yeah, guerrillas and, uh, and him saying uh, we're going to wet to them in promise the promise him to, to wipe them out with the outhouse, yeah. No, I don't think it's a double signal. It's just the, the Kremlin translation service is, you know, tries to sanitize his statements. And it's not, just, it's not just the vulgarisms. It's also some of his more extreme statements, like when he called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of our time, and the Kremlin Translation Service translated as, as a great geopolitical catastrophe. Right. You know, they they know what the they're doing. Yes. Yeah. You talk about, you know, in the book about how there was this idea that Homo Sovieticus, the kind of, you know, sociological subject that had been created by the great Soviet project, everybody thought he had died out or was, was going extinct. And that there's a sort of return in the book, or at least I think Lev suggests mm-hmm. that Homo Sovieticus is alive and well. Is what some what levels he describes as a kind of re- recurrent disease of totalitarianism coming? I mean, how optimistic do you feel that there's a way out of this, that actually Russia isn't condemned to repeat its history over and over again? Well, you know, when I was doing publicity for this book in the States, my publisher kept telling me just, just don't use the word hopeless. Like, use the word fascinating instead. <laughs> like, but, you know, I'm not in the States right now, so I can just use the word hopeless, right? Yeah, you can use the word hopeless. We're, we're a, we won't even sense a dickhead. Right. Free fire zone here. Right. No, I don't, I don't feel hopeful at all. I think that, I mean, I guess anything could happen, but, uh, but I think Russia has created a really, what may very well be an impossible predicament for itself. I can't imagine how it can create a new story, a new national narrative that will sort of take it out of this cycle of recreating sort of more and more awfulness. Does that make it sort of unique in human history? It may be. Well, it's certainly, you know, totalitarianism is a 20th century phenomenon. The Soviet experiment was the longest running totalitarian experiment. And my argument is that the trauma wrought by three generations of totalitarianism and at least two generations of state terror may be the kind of trauma that a society can't recover from. Well, the future is history. We won't say it's hopeless, we'll say it's fascinating. Masha Gessen, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.